0: Hey, thank you, Jacob, for having me, and it's a joy to be here. If you have your Bible, go to John 1. There are a lot of ways to approach a topic like the deity of Christ, and I thought it would be appropriate to approach it textually as biblical theologians this morning. Uh, Tyler said that it's likely that all of us are apt and prone to believe in the deity of Christ, so when I walked out into the snack break and smelled lunch, I was really tempted to cut a lot out of my notes, since you all likely believe this anyways. (laughs) But Jacob gave me a book for presenting my talk, so I have to earn it, I think. All right, John 1, 1 through 5. And then I'm going to just finish in... Uh, Verse 14, and we'll use this really as the focus of our time as we consider the deity of Christ this morning. But uh, John does not simply present the deity of Christ in these verses as he expounds the life and ministry of Jesus. He's going to draw us continually back into these themes. So, what we're going to do is start in John 1, and then at each turn, as we see the deity of Christ unpacked and unfolded, we're going to see how John applies that to the life and ministry of Jesus. So, I'm just going to make reference to a lot of places. In John's Gospel, John 1: 1, 1 through5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In high school, I liked reading deep theological and philosophical books. I enjoyed Calvin. And the philosopher Hobbes. And one of the books, uh, a deep philosophical book I read, was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. And I read that book in high school. And the central, one of the central storylines in the book is that there is a group of people who have set out to answer the question about the meaning of life, of the meaning of the universe and of everything. In, in his book, there's a supercomputer built to answer the question, and it calculated the answer to that question for 7.5 seven million years. And at the climax of the book, as the makers of this supercomputer get, gather to get the long-awaited answer to the life and universe and meaning and everything, the computer spits out the answer. 42. So they had to build another supercomputer to figure out what that answer meant. Now, while that book and that answer is meant to be a, a comical approach to an important question, it helps us see that even in a secular world, people want to know about the purpose of life. If there's meaning in this universe, Is there anything that brings order to our existence? Now, with a worldview without God and a worldview without a creator, where everything happens by chance or by accident, uh, in a worldview constructed by the the modern mind, there is no purpose. In fact, in a worldview like that, the meaning of life might as well be 42 or Cherry 7-Up or American Girl porcelain dolls. In a secular worldview, there is no meaning. Life is inherently meaningless. But for those of us made in the image of God, that none of us find that satisfying. So Greek philosophers, men who didn't believe in the God of the Bible, wrestled with this idea. Is there any meaning or order? Is there something that brings sense to the chaos that seems to be around us? So John's readers... The Greek philosophers, the Greek-speaking people of his day are asking these kinds of questions. And the Greek philosophers believed that there was a divine principle that brought order to our seemingly disordered and chaotic world. A divine reason behind everything that's around us in the world. In fact, there was an important Greek philosopher who lived about 600 years before John. And he he gave a well-known illustration for the world and he said human existence is like a river you never step in the same river twice that existence is like water continually flowing on the the river is always changing and our world he thought was like that river coursing turbulent moving forward always changing so you never step in the same river twice and he said he said that's what the world is like and And how in a world that is so turbulent could anything bring order to it? And for the Greek philosophers, the divine principle that brought order to a world like that was, they gave a a label to it, it was the logos. For them, for Greek philosophers, the divine logos held everything together and brought order to a chaotic world. This kind of thinking became popular in Greek thought. The divine logos then brought meaning into the world. The divine logos held the stars in their proper place. The divine logos controlled the seasons. And a couple years after that, Greek philosopher, a philosopher we know, and at least I've heard of, is Plato. And as he was thinking about the divine logos, he said, it may be that someday there will come forth From God, a word, a Logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. So when John begins, in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Logos. He is saying to Greek readers, yes, you, you are right. There is A divine principle that is holding everything together, bringing order to the world. But no, it is not a thing. The Logos is not a thing. The Logos, John would say, is a person. A person. And yes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. The word has come among us. John would say to his Greek writers, there is the word and that word has come, indeed has come into the world. But John is not only writing. I don't think when John begins his gospel, he only has in mind his Greek thinking readers. When John begins, in the beginning was the word, it's also significant for his Jewish readers. Because the logos of God was no less significant in their thinking for a Jew the word of God was God's self-disclosure. In short, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. God created by his word, ruled by his word, saved by his word. And John, for his Jewish readers, powerfully combines these ideas again into a person who is known, loved, and trusted. So as the biblically literate Jews read John's opening, he under- they would understand that John is claiming that as you encounter the word, you are having a living encounter with God himself. In the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John's gospel begins with the claim that Jesus is the Word. The eternal, infinite revelation of God come into the world. John begins the gospel with that claim, and the entire gospel of John revolves around seeing and receiving the premise that Jesus is God's Son sent into the world. So because I'm approaching this again, very similar to what Tyler said, I, I assume that as I say that none of, none of you are like, oh wow, I have not heard that before. I assume that most of you are like, okay, that's good. And what I want to do is build around that premise and give the proofs that John gives to uphold that basic premise. Because while you and I probably receive it, we live in a world where people who claim to be Christians often deny it, and people who don't claim to be Christians fail to see it. So John's gospel actually gives us proof, ammo, if you will, equipment to help us, help us develop our own thinking in this area and to help others see it. So five proofs in these verses that help us affirm the deity of Jesus. Five proofs. One. Jesus is the eternal word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. While John's gospel begins with the claim that the word is fully God, not everyone believes this claim. There are two opponents to this basic Christian teaching. Both of both opponents to this doctrine, by the way, are ancient and modern. They existed long ago and they exist today. Uh, so I'm going to give them their ancient labels and then help you see where they are in the present. So the first was the Arians. Arianisms, Arianism was the belief that the sun, or the word the sun, was a created being and inferior to God. For Arians, there's a really well-known saying there was a time when the Son was not. So, Arianism is the belief that Jesus is not the God, but in some ways a God, a created being above us as human creation, but beneath the Father. So, Arianism was condemned at the Council of of Nicaea in the 4th century, but today, non-Christian sects, like Jehovah's Witness. Witnesses and Mormons uh, are are proponents of that same error. They believe that the Son is a God, but not the God. Uh, There was a second heretical sect that denied the full deity of Jesus. They were called the, the Ebionites. And they were an ancient belief that Jesus was a mere man that God used in a special way to do incredible things. A man, not fully God, but a really powerful man that God used. Today, the closest thing to that would be modern day liberals. A modern liberal would look at Jesus and say, Well, we obviously, obviously, this side of the enlightenment, we can't believe. That's my really snobbish voice, by the way if you couldn't pick it up, I don't talk this way normally. Obviously, obviously, we can't believe in a divine hypostatic union any longer. So he was a really good, powerful man, and we can learn a lot by the power of a singular life. That would be modern-day liberals. Good man, great man, but not definitely not God. Against Arianism, John writes, in the beginning... Was the word, and the word was with God, and word was God. I find it so fascinating, by the way, that John 1 and the beginning of John's gospel sounds a lot like another part of the Bible. What does it sound like? Genesis 1. Because what do you have in Genesis 1? In the beginning, and in the beginning, there's only God. Right? There's no matter There's no time, there's no universe, nothing exists except the eternal God. In the beginning, God. And John, almost as if he's writing a New Testament commentary on Genesis 1, says, guys, this is really going to blow your mind. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. In Genesis 1, there is a God who has life in himself. He is the uncreated creator before existing before all matter and time. Before anything, you have God. And now, John, at the very beginning of his gospel, says, and the word was with God in the beginning. Why? Because the word existed before all matter and time. Because the word, like the Father, has life in himself. John does not simply make this claim for Jesus. Jesus makes this claim for himself. As he talks to the religious leaders, he says, before Abraham was, I am. What was he saying? He says, my existence did not begin at my birth at Mary, with Mary. Before Abraham, before time, I I am, I exist. And they knew exactly what he was saying because they picked up rocks to to crush his skull. Because he knew, they knew he was claiming to be God. That's why Paul can say in Colossians 1 that he is before all things. That's why Jesus in his high priestly prayer could say that God, I had glory with you before the world began. So if you want a little syllogism to defeat the Arian heretics, you can say this to them. By the way, I'm going to give you a couple of these little defense tools that I would love for you to use and tell me how it goes. One, truth one, only God is eternal. Premise two, Jesus is eternal. Therefore, Jesus is God. John reasons there very clearly in the beginning of his gospel. He doesn't simply state, well, Jesus is God. No, he says, Jesus is the eternal God. And I think you and I are often tempted to lose wonder of this. It's easy for us to conceive of the human Jesus, I think. Maybe it's because we live in an era where things like The Chosen are created, shows that express the humanity of Jesus, or the, the Passion of the Christ movies that picture Jesus as a human. Yeah, I think it is actually easy for us to picture Jesus in his humanity. But when we do that, I think there's, there is a chance that we lose something. That we lose sense that Jesus the human was not merely a man. He was the infinite, eternal God. That the man born of Mary, the man who was seen and heard and touched, the man who was crucified, is the God who had no beginning and has no end. Now, the tr- this truth about Jesus, that he is The eternal God is meant to be immensely comforting for us. It's not just a doctrine that we can hang and appreciate and look at. It's immensely practical. The eternality of Jesus is a doctrine that comforts us because if Jesus is eternal, if if he is the infinite God, then he is never busy. He is never hurried. He is never late. His arms are never full or ever tired. Because he is eternal, he is always aware, available, and helping. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament um, comes from Deuteronomy 33. A couple months ago, uh, my dad was going into the hospital for for open-heart surgery that came up pretty quickly. And my my father's a Christian. uh, And in those moments, there's just a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry. And one of the passages that I talked to him about, was Deuteronomy 33, and in this passage, uh, Moses says to the people of Israel, there is none like God, O Israel, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are everlasting arms. Because Jesus is an eternal God, he is eternally helpful. He's never exhausted. He's never tired. He's never too worn out to help. We we all feel, I think we all feel the sense of missed opportunity uh, and the pain of the busyness of life, but that never happens with Jesus. He's never rushed. He's never in a hurry. He's never surprised because he knows the end from the beginning because he is the eternal God. Jesus is the eternal word. Second, Jesus is the revealing word. John's gospel begins, in the beginning was the word. This verse teaches that Jesus as the word is the perfect expression of the Father. Scripture teaches that in Christ, in the word, The invisible God becomes visible. One of the other uh, metaphors that the Bible will use for this is the fact that Jesus is the express image of God. This is only possible. Jesus can only reveal God like this. He can only be the image of God like this because he shares the same nature as the Father. Jesus is fully god Tyler again mentioned the hypostatic union. That's that's really hard for us. Because Jesus is not 50% man and 50% God. He is 100% man and 100% God. He shares perfectly the divine nature with the Father. And yet, this is really where it gets tough. He is distinct from the Father. The Word is not the Father, but perfectly reveals the Father and is sent from the Father. This is all really hard for us to get. But the church fathers had a, illustra- a couple of ilu- an illustration for this. And by the way, you should be really careful about using illustrations to help define or describe any of these things. Because if St. Patrick teaches us anything, he teaches us that there are a lot of heretical analogies for these things. But I didn't come up with this one, so I'm going to use it. And if you disagree with it, take it up with Athanasius. Your fight with, is with him. This is what they used. The church father had an illustration for demonstrating how the, the word could be the expression of the father. They said the rays that shine from a light source are not the light source itself, nor are they a different light, but the proper offspring of it. All right, there we go. What is the word? The word is coming from the Father, distinct from the Father, but of the same essence as the Father. And in that, he perfectly reveals who the Father is, which is why, this is so good, by the way, when, I love, you got to love the disciples, man, I'm telling you. They asked all the terrible questions you and I would have asked, and they get embarrassed for us. So John 14, I mean, John 14, this is the end of Jesus' public ministry. He's about to die on the cross. He's been with his disciples three years. He said all these things to him, and Philip's like, okay, man, Jesus, we need you to show us the Father. (laughs) And I don't know the tone of voice Jesus said when he said this. I love imagining it. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is the perfect expression of God the Father. And how is that possible? Because he is God. He shares the divine nature with the Father. The Dutch theologian Herman Bavink helps us. He says, in him, the Father has perfectly expressed himself, his wisdom, his will his excellencies, his whole being. And if I can add to that, the Father's heart. In Jesus, we see the perfect blend of the Father's love and mercy and kindness and grace and severity. All of it in Jesus. Jesus is the revealing word. Third, Jesus, and boy, I had a hard time labeling this. I went with this label. I could go with a different label but I'll just give you this one. Jesus is the loved word. In John 1, I'm still focusing on verse 1, by the way. This is, I, had, I took five verses, and I don't have enough time to talk about everything that's in them. So I'm doing my best to give you like a gloss of them. In the beginning was the word. Second phrase. And the word was with God. Okay. We're stepping out of simple Monotheism into complex monotheism. All right, John's kind of blowing the minds of his Jewish readers at this point. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Jesus, the eternal Word, existed in perfect fellowship and harmony with God the Father. Though the Word and God the Father are distinct persons, They have and enjoyed eternal fellowship and unbreakable union with each other. That's why Jesus could say, I and the Father are one. It's heretical to say that they're one person. Nope. Big heresy, capital H. Avoid that one. What are they saying? Is that we have enjoyed, the Father and I, perfect unity. And that's what we see in the Godhead. We see unity. They are one. And yet, in the Godhead, there's unity and diversity. Because the word existed eternally along with the Father, there is a withness. W-I-T-H. Withness. A withness that ensures that God is never alone. The church fathers loved to pick up on this, by the way. Because the word existed along eternally with the Father, God is never alone. And it is precisely at this point that we can say with confidence that the infinite, eternal God is love. Where does love come from? Love has existed for all eternity in the Godhead, because in the Godhead, in the Godhead, you have an infinite and eternal subject and object of love. The fathers love the church fathers love this, this theme. In the Godhead, you have a lover and a loved, which means that in himself, God is perfect love. Expresses it perfectly. And is never alone. He never needs anything. He never never has lacked anything. But the culmination of our salvation. The culmination of what it means to be saved. Is that you and I enter in to the divine eternal love of the Father and Son. And exist in that fellowship with them forever. I'm not... I'm going to say some things that I don't understand and that kind of blow my mind and that's like the biggest one maybe. Like think about that. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer as he's praying for believers, he says, I do not only ask for these, the disciples that are with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one just as you Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. Do you know what the end, the eternal joy of your salvation is based in? That God, in his mercy, brings sinners into the loving fellowship of the Godhead. The eternal love that the Father and the Son enjoyed with each other, we enjoy along with them. Like, just, I don't, I don't know how else to say it but to say it that way. Because Jesus is God and has existed in eternal love with the Father, and only because He is God, are you and I given access to that eternal love. So, as Christians, We no longer simply say God is love. We experience it. We live in it. And it is our eternal hope. Jesus is the loved word. Fourth, Jesus is the creating word. C.S. Lewis loved to connect the love that God enjoyed with himself and the creative impulse of God. Because God is love, and is perfectly delighted in himself. He, the best thing he could do is share that with others. So why did God create? Because God wanted to, to quote the great Bob Marley, share the love. Right? God created out of an impulse to share the love that he has in himself with others. We see that in verse 3, by the way. Right? Look at, keep, keep reading in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was in the beginning with with Him, in, with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Because God is love, God creates. And the Word is the infinite, eternal, omnipotent Creator. It's at this point as well that Arius... And the other heretics are defeated in a single verse. Because John tells us that Jesus, the word, is the uncreated creator. And if if you ever get a chance, a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon comes knocking at your door, here's what I want you to do. Get a piece of paper. You have a piece of paper in front of you right now. And draw a circle. In fact, do this. Draw a circle on your piece of paper, not a big one because there's going to be lots more good stuff for you to write down. But draw a circle. See, I did it. Mine's terrible. But I drew one. You drew a circle too. Now, inside of that circle, I want you to write everything that was made. Go ahead. I don't see enough writing. Write it down. Write the, you like writing things down? Write this down. Everything that was made. Now, as you talk to Jehovah's Witness or Mormon at your door, and they are going to try to tell you that Jesus is a created creator. Draw okay in this circle everything that is made, and then say, Ed, "Let me read John one three to you. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made." I have a circle, and in that circle, there's everything that was made. Is Jesus inside or outside of that circle? If I had a glass of water, I'd do the spit take. (laughs) Nope, not inside. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So is Jesus inside or outside the circle? Jesus is outside. He is the uncreated creator. Because John tells us all things were made through him. Without Jesus, nothing is made. So I actually want you to try. I've never actually tried that. I think you should try it. Next time someone comes to your door, draw the circle. And actually, I think it's more powerful if you have them draw the circle. You give them a piece of paper. I want you to write something down. Do it. And just let me know how it goes. If you get the opportunity, like, Aaron at nwbc.mn. Email me. I want to know how it goes. Because if it doesn't work, you can kindly say, you are denying an essential Christian doctrine. And we have no fellowship. And you can close the door. Don't slam it in their face. But. In this one verse, John makes it clear that Jesus is not a created being. He is himself the uncreated creator. Fifth, Jesus is the saving word. Jesus is the saving word. John goes on in his prologue, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John lets us know that Jesus, the Word, came on a mission. He came to bring spiritual life to those who are dead. And he came to bring spiritual light to those who dwell in darkness. Up to this point in the prologue, I think I can say that John's primary focus has been on who the Word is. He has been drawing our attention to the word's attributes. The word is one with the Father. He is the perfect expression of the Father. He is the eternal word who has existed along with the Father because he has life in himself. He is not given life. The word is life. The Word is the one perfectly united in fellowship with the Father. The Word is the omnipotent, all-powerful creator. And all of these divine attributes come to bear in the mission of the Word. The Word is sent from the Father into the world to accomplish the saving mission of the Godhead. And it's this saving mission that is the central theme of the two pictures, the two metaphors of verse 4. The word is light and the word is life. As light, he penetrates into the darkness. As life, he rescues from death. And it's because, because the word is the omnipotent God, He never fails to accomplish God's saving purposes. The word completes the mission that God sent him to perform. This shouldn't surprise us. Boy, I I read Isaiah 55 in a new light when I thought about this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word does not fail to accomplish the mission of God. Because brothers and sisters, if Jesus is not God, there is no gospel. If Jesus is not God, there is no salvation. Uh, I know it's not a competition, but when I saw the assigned topics and Tyler got the humanity of Jesus and I got the deity, I was like, oh, I got the better one. Because a lot of people can affirm the, affirm the humanity of Jesus. But the humanity of Jesus is worth bunk if he's not God. God. Right? It's just not worth anything. The humanity of Jesus is worth nothing apart from the deity of Christ because the gospel happens at the intersection of God's transcendence and his imminence. The transcendent God who is creator and unlike us, infinite, omnipotent, all-knowing, separate from us has come close. His transcendence Draws near to us. The gospel is is the fact that the very God of very gods becomes man. The author of creation writes himself into the story. And it's at that moment that we, we marvel at the imminence of God's transcendence. We marvel that a God would draw so close to us. One of my, boy, I love when poets do this. I love when poets help us grasp the wonder of the transcendent God drawing close. See the king who made the stars, sorry, see the king who made the sun and the moon and shining stars. Let the soldiers hold and nail him down so that he could save us. See, what did God do with his everlasting, omnipotent arms? He let them be crucified, outstretched in a posture of weakness. Why? So that he could bring life and light into the world. So that his light would penetrate the darkness of our hearts and his life defeat the death that we deserved. The author of creation writes himself into the story. The mission of God is accomplished by God himself saving us. Which is why when Jesus stands up and says, I am the resurrection and the life, he offers you the eternal life of the infinite God. Because he has it himself to give. So, as Christians, we affirm the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdoms shall have no end. You see, in the mission of the word, we see the end and the order of everything. And what do we see at the end? At the end of history, people... From every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and every language, bowing down and worshiping the word made flesh. Gathered around the throne saying, Worthy is the lamb who was slain for all eternity. For all eternity. We will sing amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me. Let's pray. Father, we do not appreciate the gift that you have given us in your son as we ought. We do not wonder at it as often as we should. It is not as beautiful and captivating to our hearts as it needs to be. So I pray that in just our short time this morning, each of us would have a greater grasp and a greater appreciation of the supremacy of Christ. And we would see him as our greatest treasure. We pray these things in his name, amen.